This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. Well, as if I needed more proof that we're surrounded with signals these days, I was playing with a software-defined receiver, and I just stuck a wire in the antenna port to see what was in the air, so to speak. Boy, did I get an earful. Now, this was just a six-foot piece of wire, and I was sniffing around on VHF, but I could hear signals from my station computer and from the electronics in my wife's work-at-home office, which is about 20 feet away. I was also picking up a slew of unwanted garbage from our cable TV system. As we discussed in a previous episode, electromagnetic pollution is becoming a serious issue, and not just for hams. Now you have wireless devices interfering with other devices, and this is causing headaches for the manufacturers. Since ancient radio times, one popular solution has been to heavily shield the devices, right? I once lined the inside of one of my computer cabinets with grounded copper foil just to reduce the signals it was generating. It kind of worked, but in truth, it was a lot of effort for pretty mediocre results. Anyway, scientists at Drexel University have been looking into the problem of shielding. To no one's surprise, they determined that copper foil solutions, like mine, tend to just reflect the signals. If you can keep the reflected energy within the cabinet, that's fine. But unless you go to great lengths to make that cabinet RF tight, the signals have a tendency to escape. The Drexel solution was to try a material called titanium carbonitride. It works its shielding magic by absorbing signals rather than reflecting them. It belongs to a class of materials called mexines, which I've mentioned before when we were talking about those spray-on antennas a number of episodes ago. In this case, the team found that sheets of titanium carbonitride that were much thinner than a human hair were able to block electromagnetic interference between three and five times better than copper foil. The team found that titanium carbonitride actually absorbed the signals rather than reflecting them back out. That means they ended up reducing the overall noise in the whole environment. Thanks to this absorbing ability and its super thinness, The team says that titanium carbonitride could be used to wrap components individually within a device, preventing them from interfering with each other even when they're practically on top of each other. I have no idea how much this stuff costs. I don't know how to get my hands on any of it. But if I find out, I'll definitely let you know. I suspect a few of you may have heard about the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. Well, if not, here's a very short story. On the Norwegian island of Spitsbergen, in the Svalbard archipelago, there's this big fortified vault that holds millions of seed samples contributed from around the world. The mission of the vault is pretty grim. In the event of an apocalyptic disaster such as nuclear war or an asteroid strike, the seed vault is supposed to be our last best hope of bringing back many plant species. But what about the preservation of technology? Well, on the same island, and in fact, in the same mountain, they've just created the Arctic World Archive. 
Its goal is to preserve the source codes for as many software applications as possible so that they can presumably be resurrected and used by whatever computer technology may exist. GitHub, which you probably have also heard of, is often billed as the world's largest host of open source code, and they've successfully transported all of their active public code repositories to the Arctic World Archive as part of the company's ongoing efforts to establish what they call the GitHub Arctic Code Vault. GitHub says its mission is to preserve open source software for future generations by storing the codes in a vault that's meant to last a thousand years. So far, they've deposited more than 21 terabytes of data. This data isn't stored on disks or on chips. Instead, they have written it into 186 reels of digital archival film. The film's composed of silver halides on polyester, and if you saw it, the result looks like a series of miniature QR codes on each frame, like if you were looking at film from a movie. Each reel contains about 3,500 feet of film. Sitting in a steel-walled chamber 800 feet down in an abandoned coal mine, they say the film can withstand pretty high levels of radiation. Of course, I'm sure you're thinking, this is all well and good, but how is anyone going to read the codes a hundred years from now, let alone a thousand years from now? I have ham software originally written for ancient versions of Windows from 1999 that I'll never be able to use, much less recode to a modern version. With this in mind, the vault's also going to contain a separate human-readable reel called the Tech Tree, and it will explain the technical history and the cultural context of the archive's contents. The tech tree will serve as a primer for what these programs are and what kind of technology they run on. As they say in football, this is a Hail Mary pass into the future, but I suppose it beats the alternative, which is preserving nothing at all. I'm on the telephone with Al Rabasa, NW2M, and Al's written a number of things for QST Magazine, but I'd like to call your attention to an article he wrote back in February 2019, and it was called The Basics of Fan Cooling. And the reason I point that out was because that article was the basis of Al winning the 2019 Doug DeMaw W1FB Technical Excellence Award. Good evening, Al. Uh, good evening, Steve. Nice to hear you. Al, looking over your article, and of course I've read it several times, but it takes a interesting look at something that I think a lot of hams really take for granted, and that's fan cooling, or fans themselves, wouldn't you say? Uh, yes. Uh, the amount of inefficiencies in some of the equipment we have connected and operating, you know, they cascade, these inefficiencies cascade, and it tends to heat the components. And after a while, you start to wonder, you know, what is the limit of some of this heating? And we're very fortunate that fans and some of the latest heat sink designs uh, are there for us to remove some of this embedded heat. There's a lot more to fan technology than there appears to be, isn't there? Yes. And on a daily basis, I work in a data center with tens of thousands of servers, and there are four, five, six fans in these servers, and they're trying to keep the heat away so that the uh, servers themselves do not go into a thermal overload or thermal heating and degrade with time. So I am surrounded by 10,000 screaming fans every single day, and I am not a rock star. 
<laughs> well, you know, in your article, you point out the fact that fans move air in, well, the, the metric we can use is cubic feet per minute. And that has to be carefully calibrated for the heat that you're trying to deal with or dissipate. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And it's based upon a parameter that we as hams or the manufacturers set at the time of design, and that's called delta T. And we hear the word delta, the Greek symbol delta, meaning change. And in this case, delta T for temperature, it's how much heating of the air are we allowing to pass through the equipment that we're trying to cool. And in many times, uh, 20 degrees Fahrenheit is a typical value where you have, you know, 72 degree air in the environment in the ham shack, and we're going to allow the exhaust air coming out to be 20 degrees warmer. And when you work the equations backwards, you can actually figure out how many cubic feet per minute the fan or fans have to produce to actually move that much heat to give you that delta T. Now, those fan properties, you refer to, Al, as affinity laws or fan laws. Can you define that generally? Yes, there are three data points. And when you look at the article, I keep referring to the exponent because it's very easy to talk about either cutting the fan speed in half or doubling it, you know, the factor of two. And we tell people always follow the exponent. And the exponent in this case tells us that if we double or half the fan speed, what we get is to the first power, the airflow, the, the linear feet is a function of the fan speed itself. Then you've got the pressure. How much pressure is the fan pushing against? And that follows the square of the values. So you're either, you know, uh, a quarter of it or it's, it's a square of it. And then lastly, and the one that applies to me in the data centers is the amount of power the electrical power required to drive that fan at twice the speed or the savings we get from running it at half the speed. And that's a cube function. So again, there's a lot of math and savings to be had if you can, in fact, run fans at a slower speed. And the one element that we don't care about in a computer space is the amount of fan noise. And there's an algorithm and a formula that says if you reduce the fan speed uh, by a factor of two, the amount of decibel noise drops tremendously. And since we're sitting behind a transceiver many times with a live microphone, the last thing you want to do is transmit fan noise out over the air. Well, you bring up an excellent topic because I have some personal experience, Al, and I won't mentioned the uh, make and model of the transceiver, but it was one I used to own. I no longer own it. But whenever I was transmitting, and it was annoying, as you can imagine, suddenly the fan would go to high speed, and you could really hear it. I mean, it was kind of alarming at times. Uh, do they try to design for that or design around it or, or what? Well, the good thing about the designs we have today is the chassis of the modern transceivers are almost a large ingot of aluminum. 
they are inherently a heat sink. And the manufacturers have done a great job in trying to dissipate that heat without incurring a lot of uh, fan noise in that regard. But when you do get to a certain point where airflow assistance is needed to remove the heat out of the chassis, they have variable speed fans. Uh, I guess the transceiver you had, it was either on or off or maybe had three or four steps to it. And it's always hunting for the proper fan speed. Well, with the modern equipment, it's variable. So it's always going to, you know, self-correct, self-throttle for the amount of heat that the heat sink itself is trying to stay at or below. If I recall correctly in the article, Al, you address uh, a topic that is also taken for granted by a number of amateurs, and that is the idea of duty cycle and heat. I'm thinking in particular of, uh, I mean, I enjoy operating RTTY, for example, and uh, that's a 100 duty cycle mode, 100%, I should say. What in general, uh, should a person do as far as they're setting their output power for a, say, a 100% duty cycle mode like RTTY, FM, something like that? The recommendation is normally what, 50% below full output or, or what? Well, I always tell people to take a look at the manufacturer's specification. Every radio in the front material has a list of specifications. You know, what is the voltage range? What is the current requirements? And in there will be typically a listing for the duty cycle for the different modes of operation. So you may see a 50-50 duty cycle where they're allowing you to run the radio at 100% output, provided that it goes into receive for an equal amount of time. And that's for a 100% duty cycle, such as RIDI or FM or the uh, the high duty cycles you just mentioned. We we do have a little more headroom, if you will, with conversational single sideband, which typically runs about 20%. And if you were to run your audio processor pretty heavy, you can get that duty cycle up to about 40%. So all in all, you've got to go back in and look at what the manufacturer is saying the safe operating uh, thermal environment is because we can always put heat into the radio faster than we can take it out. Good point. In, in the transceiver I own presently, there is a temperature display. And I'm always mindful to uh, take a glance at that, especially, again, if I'm operating digital modes. But fortunately, uh, it barely moves. So is that an indicator of good design or just short transmission periods on my part? Well, the answer is both. I mean, it's, it's an equation. You know, how much heat are you putting in over how much time? And if you're doing a very short cycle, you know, some of these new digital modes only last for, you know, six seconds. Some of the longer digital modes, you're transmitting for 50 seconds with a 10-second receive. So, again, when you look at it from end to end, you got to take a look at how much heat am I putting in in the transmit mode versus how much time am I waiting on receive, which gives the fan time to remove some of that heat and let the chassis recover at least thermally. When you were speaking of the air temperature in the environment generally, the station environment in this case, does that impact where you can locate, physically locate, your transceiver? In other words, that you 
need to keep the uh, the area around it clear so that the air can flow properly through the fan? Or how does that work? Well, what you're trying to do is be in an environment where the fan running at the highest speed can still remove the heat given the inlet temperature that you're giving it. And I'm just using a 72, 74, 76 degree temperature for a shack. But if you're in an elevated temperature area and it's hotter than what the fan can move the delta temperature through that chassis at 100%, it cannot vent that heat out of the chassis and you're going to get into a thermal avalanche and the radio will go into self-protect or you could damage a component or it could drift off frequency. There's a lot of negative things that happen when you get into elevated temperatures. So it is possible then, if somebody were operating, let's say in an outdoor environment, could be in a public service activity, where it's really hot like it is here today, it's in the 90s, uh, they could, in theory, get into trouble with the radio, correct? I would say you're going to be more in trouble in an enclosed space. So if it's warm enough or cool enough for you to operate as a person, the chassis should be able to remove that amount of heat. I don't see that being a problem. But if you were to install or wrapper or create a go kit and the airflow around the radio is not sufficient, that could create a rather warm environment that you as the operator don't necessarily observe. So there's also one more area, and that is elevation. And if you get into higher elevations up in the mountains, you know, people in Colorado, places like that where you're at 5,000, 6,000 feet in elevation, the air is just not as thick, and therefore the fan has to spin that much faster. And you typically get into elevation correction factors that have to be taken in, into account. But generally, the manufacturers have built-in headroom so that a warmer environment and an elevated environment do not cause any kind of negative uh, effects. I would never have thought of that, Al. I, I wouldn't have considered elevation and the density of the atmosphere. So the manufacturers do take that into account? Oh, yes, they have to. And because it's driven by a uh, temperature sensor inside the unit, the fan speed is going to track the temperature that it senses on the chassis. And typically the hottest part inside the chassis is right at the transmitter itself. That one embedded uh, transistor or a pair of transistors in an environment, the temperature sensor sits right between them. And that's the hottest point and that's the, the epicenter of the source of heat that the fans are trying to get out of the chassis. So you would never think there was that much to know about fans and cooling. It would never have occurred to me. It, it's just because of the inefficiencies. I mean, I discovered this by happenstance. Uh, I have a meter that plugs into the wall, the electrical outlet on the wall, that shows me how many watts that I'm drawing. And I was curious one day, what does my transceiver actually draw? So the outlet was showing that I had 325 watts of power coming out of the outlet. And I'm like, that's kind of high for a 100 watt RF output. And when I work it backwards, there was like 170 watts of heat inside my 100 
uh, Watt transceiver that had to be removed by fan assist. And the switching power supply, even though it was rated at 83% efficiency, there was 55 watts of heat in the power supply. So overall, the efficiency was rather low for a 100-watt electrical or RF output. So all that embedded differences is in the form of heat. And that's why my power supply has a small fan. And that's why the transceiver has a small fan. Wow. (laughs) Well, Al, I'm going to mention your article one more time here for listeners who uh, I would strongly recommend who want to go back and look at it. Once again, it's the basics of fan cooling, and you'll find it in the February 2019 issue of QST Magazine. Thank you for your time, Al. Oh, you're welcome, Steve. We'll talk to you soon. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.